Because we live in a Puritan police state, we are obliged to inform you that we may sometimes use explicit language. If you are looking for more of that, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or visit our website at wihhw.com. Now that you've been informed, things are about to get weird. Welcome to what I had heard was, I am Jennifer. I'm Anna. And I'm Diane. And this is a Midnight Edition episode where we talk to you about female mobsters. Yay! Whoop whoop! Gang, gangsters, galsters? No, just gangsters. <laughs> I was trying to get all uh, Parks and Rec on it with Valentine's Day type thing, and it just didn't work. Salger, Salger is salt and sugar. From that, <laughs> yeah. exactly. <laughs> so, uh, how was your week, ladies? Oh, it was good. It was good. It, you know, weather's crazy pants. This global warming thing's an actual thing. It's been like 60 degrees and ridiculous. And like I was walking around a t-shirt at Christmas time. And now there's snow and ice. And, you know, it was 50 to 50 this afternoon. But it's just supposed to be snowing um, this evening. So like, what the fuck? I will say one thing that worked out really well is because we didn't shovel the driveway, which we learned always shovel the driveway when you live here. Mm-hmm. So he was pulling his work truck in and he got out and got into another of our vehicles. And when he got back down, backing out in that vehicle, the work truck had slid down into the street. There was nobody in it. So it did that while parked. Uh. Yeah. Because, like, what are you going to do? It's not like that runaway garbage can you had where you can, you know, like, jump in front of it and be a hero. Like, you'll get run over. I forgot all about that. I have not. I saw a video. <laughs> you saw a video? Yeah. He's got uh, uh, security footage. Oh, that's right. I still want to know, like, how it started flying down. <laughs> Is there anywhere in the United States that has a pretty steady climate right now? That's where I want to go. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, no. It'll be 40 in California and 68 in Michigan. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think we're just all going to have to be like the birds and be seasonal. (laughs) Just travel around. Kind of float around wherever, you know, follow the sun. So I'll come to Cincinnati in the summer and you guys come to North Carolina or South Carolina in the winter. Deal. Right on. Cincinnati in the summer is gross, though. Cincinnati all the time is gross. Like, there's about nine days out of the year that Cincinnati is nice. (laughs) And they're not consecutive. Like, that's over the span of the whole year. And it's in the fall. (laughs) No. (laughs) There's three in the fall, one in the summer, two in the winter, and all the rest are in the spring. (laughs) Because I can't count. So I was like, whatever. Whatever the rest is. (laughs) And the leftovers. So, speaking of leftovers, oh yeah, gangsters, female gangsters. Why is it such a why is it such a big deal? Why do people care? I don't know if people do care. I care. We'll find out if people care based on their <laughs> listening to this episode. <laughs> well, I mean, I I feel like based on other stuff we've talked about, serial killers, you know, um, moms who murder. I don't you know all these things. It's always like oh, women do bad stuff. What? 
that mentality is seriously out there. I have talked to yeah. so many men who are like, I never thought a woman could do something like that. Yeah. Like, who, do, who do you think we are? Like, we're human too. Yeah, I know. We want to do the same dumbass shit that you guys do. We want to be violent. We want to break some shit. Do you know how satisfying it is to flip a fucking table when you're upset? It's so cathartic. I mean, it sucks because then you got to clean all the shit up off the floor, but it feels so good. I get it. <laughs> we like sex. We want to sleep around with different people too. Test the waters. Yeah. And I think this is interesting because, or interesting to people because they're breaking stereotypes, right? You would never think that a woman could be an organized crime or be in a position of power like some of these women were. And it just breaks a stereotype of what's normal. So that's why it's interesting. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's why it's, it's special and weird and unique because it's not what white male straight viewpoints are, you know, and that has been the norm. That is what is considered normal. The litmus paper, the ground zero, the thing that you judge everything else off of. So if somebody's tall, fat, smart, thin, whatever, whatever, in our society, it's all based off of straight white males. So anything else is like, oh, that's shocking. That's different. That's unique. That's foreign. That's exciting. That's, you know, deviant. So that's why people like talking about all this stuff. It's because it seems weird and unique and whatever. But as far as we're concerned, that's just how we do. Yeah, I think that they have these two versions of what women can be. Either you can be the nice, sweet woman. That is the stereotypical idea Right. Yeah. Feminine and lace and all that, which is great. Like I, we're not trying to diss on that because that's, if that's how you are, that's wonderful. And I love you for it. And please be continue to do that. And at the other end of the spectrum, they have an idea of this person who is like yelling and screaming and abusive and just always horrible. You know, there is yeah. no in between. It's very black and white in how women are interpreted. Right, right. Yeah, you got the hag or you got the fairy princess. And this week I thought was particularly interesting because I did Ma Barker. Yes. And I started off watching the movie and I was like, damn, this woman is something else. But I couldn't get into it. So <laughs> I decided to read because that served me better. What's the movie? Ma Barker's Killer Brood. Oh my God. It's an older movie. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like it would be amazing. Like, I feel like Quentin Tarantino needs to do a remake of that. Maybe if they redid it, it would be better, but it was awful. Oh. Anyway, it was just boring, I guess. The, the movie portrays her as this violent, aggressive woman who's, very, you know, very domineering. And yeah. that was the picture in people's head for years and years until, you know, it kind of came out where it's like, but that's not true. I mean, Hollywood played some shit up to make a sensational movie. What? What? Well, it wasn't just Hollywood. Let me tell you. Tell me. I shall. She was born <laughs> Arizona Clark on October 8th of 1873 in Ashgrove, Missouri. Her parents, John and Emmeline Clark. So throughout her life, she had several nicknames. Ma Barker, Kate Barker. I can't figure out the Kate thing. Her name's Arizona, but her name's also Kate. How do you get nicknamed Kate? Maybe that was her middle name. I don't know. I don't know. It's the same way like people nickname me Leroy. It just shit just happens sometimes. That's weird. 
Her family called her Ari, though. <laughs> Leroy. Ari is nice. I would like that. I mean, that'd be a good shortened name for Arizona. Ari? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's a Jewish name. It's not spelled that way, but yes, it is. Uh, so in 1892, in Lawrence County, Missouri, she marries George Barker. They had four sons together. Herman, who was born in 1893. Lloyd, born in 1897. Arthur, who was born in 1899. And Fred, who was born in 1901. And what happened from the time she had her boys to the time she died is highly contended some people suggest that she was the mastermind of the criminal gang the baker carpus gang (laughs) sure others suggest that the idea was created by the fbi and more specifically j edgar hoover that ass so this was like back in the public enemy era Mm -hmm. hoover described her as quote the most vicious, dangerous, and resourceful criminal of the last decade. Their family lived in extreme poverty, uh, and it's alleged that the Barker boys were, quote, more or less illiterate, according to an FBI document. Well, who knows if that's true? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, figuring out if you're illiterate or not is fairly easy unless the person's lying. This is the FBI's documentation of them. No, that's true. So around 1928, George either decides to leave the home because he's unhappy with the criminal behavior of his boys or Ma tells him to leave. I find conflicting information and I wasn't there. I would hope not. Otherwise, we'd have to have some talking about your skin regime and how you look so fresh and clean after 100 plus years. Virgin blood. The FBI alleged It was because she was, quote, loose in her moral life, end quote, and, (laughs) quote, having outside dates with other men, end quote. And see, (laughs) imagine what they'd be saying now about people who were on Tinder and stuff. Oh, can you even, I can't even imagine. So regardless, her and her husband split up. George is gone. Ma's on her own with the boys. And... About 1930, she starts living with a man named Arthur Dunlop, who was unemployed, because it sounds like she really knew how to pick him. <laughs> she she picked people she could control. Yeah, that's true. That's what it was, much like her sons. You know, like if you kept him illiterate, you know, then it's easier to control him because you can just siphon, you know, information to that's him. That's an excellent point. And you know where else we saw that is Ed Gein. His, his mother behaved very similarly. Yeah, so she could keep control over him. Right. Her financial situation was greatly improved when her son Fred was released from jail. I don't know about immediately, but pretty quickly, he decided he was going to form a gang with a guy he had met in jail named Alvin Carpus. And they collectively formed the Barker Carpus gang. Rolls off the tongue. Do we know why Fred went to jail in the beginning? Probably. I mean, like, there's there's a timeline of the crimes they committed, and it's just pages and pages and pages. Honestly, if you want to know the crime, he got thrown into prison for that time. Just go, like, Wikipedia. I didn't put it all down because I was like, oh, I don't have... There's just too much. They just... Yeah. Revolving door. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much what it sounded like. Before the three strikes, well, you know, where they could go in 50 times and come back out so he gets out they've started this barker carpus gang 
And Fred and Alvin were doing a lot of burglary, bank robberies, that type of thing. And they ended up killing a sheriff named C. Roy Kelly on December 19, 1931. And obviously they were forced to move. They couldn't stick around. Ma and Arthur went along with them and they used a variety of false names. They didn't provide any of those names, but that's a shame. It is. I'd pick up one of those names and start filling out. You man, you remember uh, Columbia House Records, and you could like sign up for whatever and get like you know a whole bunch of cassette tapes for a penny. Uh huh. And then you're supposed to buy like four thousand dollars more, but nobody ever did. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I signed up for a few of those with false names. What? What? So it said that Thomas Big Tom Brown the police chief of St. Paul, Minnesota, where they had fled to, was corrupt. And not like a little corrupt, but big corrupt. He's said to have potentially been the catalyst to the gang's most infamous crimes. It's always an inside job. Ooh. Right? Now, Arthur had a bit of a drinking problem. And by a bit, I mean a severe drinking problem. And when he would get drunk, he liked to talk as many of us do. Oh, no. Oh, yes. They were identified. They were tipped off by the sheriff that they needed to leave. And so when the FBI got there, they were obviously gone. However, they believed Arthur was the cause of this, and they killed him while they were traveling. And he was discovered naked with a single gunshot wound to the head. The naked thing kind of throws me off. Like, was it just to degrade him? Maybe they needed his clothes. No. They need a jobless man's clothes. No, that's a good point. Yeah, it's got to be some sort of power play. Yep, I bet you're right. Strip down, give me clothes. Ha ha ha, pa-pow. Men, jeez. So I found no indication in my research of how she felt about this. It was just like, oh, well, they killed him and left him on the side of the road or whatever, naked. But that's it. There's never like... Ma said this, or she felt this way. And it really felt like it all went back to this blind devotion she had to her boys. That was the only thing that mattered to her, and she would do anything. This is my opinion, my interpretation of the information. So she bounced around through hotels and rental properties where Fred would hide her. The FBI alleges that she would try to break up relationships of the gang members, like their girlfriends and them and of course right and so that fred did this so that she wouldn't be around the other women and drive them off but it's probably more likely that this was done to keep her away from the criminal activities if she's not the mastermind then they keep her at a distance right what you don't know can't hurt you yeah yeah plausible deniability yeah but i like the story where she's the ringleader or she's like I don't know. I just love the fact that she's like, you know what? I'm fucking tired of your shit. Papa, you move out. Me and the boys, we're going to just take care of our own stuff whichever way we can. All right, boys, you're dumb, but you're pretty good at all this like thievery and stuff. So go out, knock a couple heads together, round up what you can, and we're going to, you know, live our lives. It's a better story, I think. But it, like so many things we talk about, it gets built up, you know, the legend of. Yeah. It's like Fox News. You know, the stuff they talk about is a much better story than what's actually going on in the life. Definitely more interesting. 
I shouldn't say that too. <laughs> and I'm going to upset some people about that, but sorry. In 1933, they were back in St. Paul where they carried out two separate kidnappings. The first one, they got $100,000. And in the second one, they got $200,000 for a total of $300,000 back in that time. Can you even imagine? Holy shit. Yeah, you're rolling. Like, you don't got to do anything else. Just live off of that. Let me see. I think that in current time rate, that's $420 billion. No. <laughs> no, I have no idea. Oh, I thought you were serious. I was like, that's so much inflation. <laughs> she was like, carry the one, second to the four, right. multiply the niner. Yeah, yeah. I'm not that good. <laughs> so they decided to move to Chicago to rent my apartment while they were trying to launder this money. I guess they assumed that they couldn't just go spend money they had gotten on a ransom. January 16th of 1935, the FBI, who are totally unaware that Carpus and the rest of the gang had left like three days earlier, they surround this house that Ma and Fred are hiding out in. And they told him to surrender. Fred was like, mm, fuck that. And he opens fire. Now the agents, they think the whole fucking gang's in there. Somehow this standoff lasts for like hours, an hours long standoff with Fred and Ma in there being the only people in there. Maybe they waited a long time. I have questions. So at the end of the standoff, both Ma and Fred had been killed and the bodies were found in the same room. And while Fred was, quote, riddled with bullets, Ma had a single gunshot wound. Being the delight that our government is, they put the bodies on public display for all to see. And then they remained unclaimed until October first of 1935 when the relatives had them buried next to the body of Herman and like I said earlier the whole portrayal of her is believed to be highly embellished and I mean while she obviously did benefit financially from her son's criminal behavior nobody thinks she was the mastermind of these crimes like she definitely helped them beforehand and she helped them afterward. But as far as knowing what they were going to do or knowing what they did, they think that there was a barrier there. And she gave the gang an air of legitimacy as they traveled and rented because they appeared just to be a family. She would still go grocery shopping. She'd still pay bills, a mother and her sons. Right. Who's going to suspect a family right. doing this? Right. Let alone a family that's headed by a female. So Alvin Carpus said... She was, quote, an old-fashioned homebody from the Ozarks, superstitious, gullible, simple, cantankerous, and, well, generally law-abiding. He goes on to say, the most ridiculous story in the annals of crime is that Ma Barker was the mastermind behind the Carpus Barker. I got to stop for a second because he is the only person who has ever referred to it as Carpus Barker. Everyone refers to it as Barker Carpus. And moving on. Gang, she wasn't a leader of criminals or even a criminal herself. There is not one police photograph of her or set of her fingerprints taken while she was alive. She knew we were criminals, but her participation in our careers was limited to one function. When we traveled together, we moved as a mother and her sons. What could look more innocent? And then Harvey Bailey, who was a notorious bank robber, said of Ma, 
in his autobiography, quote, she couldn't plan breakfast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my final statement on that is I hope she never made him a fucking pot roast because he sounds like a dick. And, <laughs> and to round this up in Lake Weir, W-E-I-R, Chamber of Commerce, they have an annual Ma Barker shootout on, you guessed it, Ma Barker Day in yeah. a building near the location of her death. And that, my friends, is what I had heard about Ma Barker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I learned so much because honestly, before this, the only like reference of Ma Barker I had was from DuckTales, where she was portrayed as Ma Beagle. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know anything about her either. I just thought like, I thought she was this horrible woman. I mean, she could have been. It doesn't sound like she actually was. It sounded like the FBI was like, fuck, we killed an old lady. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it sounded like the FBI was like, shit, we killed this old lady. Uh, let's come up with a story to make her sound like this complete asshole. So then it's like, it's not a big deal that we actually just killed this lady. Right, she's a criminal mastermind and dangerous. Jennifer, I think the thought was awesome. And if I could, I would go rate our podcast and tell everyone how awesome it was. But I can't. So I'm going to ask everybody else to go on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you listen and give us a five-star rating if you like us. And if you don't, uh, just tell us just so we can make ourselves better, maybe. Or we'll just ignore it. Either way. You can email us at what I had heard was at gmail.com. We love constructive criticism. We may not love it, but. Or you can go to our website to find all of the links to our episodes and to rate us at wihhw.com. Dot com. Absolutely. And we are still taking submissions for your hometown badasses. Tell us about inspirational women. On our website at WIHHW, there is a form front page. Tell us all about that woman. Yeah. And, if, you know, and honestly, it could be somebody like, you know what? She woke up today. She made a cup of coffee. And she's my fucking hero because she was just there to say hi and wave at me on the porch. That's fucking badass, too. Still fucking showing up. Yeah. Speaking of showing up, I would like to tell you about who I heard about this week which is Arlene Weiss. Have you ever heard of her? I have not. Weiss. Nope. Learn me. I shall learn you. <laughs> I'm super excited because she was right after your folks. She was born in 1933 in New York City to actually a wealthy family. She's like one of the few that I've heard of that didn't come out of poverty. She actually came out of wealth. Her whole life, she was exposed to the mob right from when she was a baby because her father was a rich Jewish car dealer who had like lots of ties to the mob. Mm. And mm -hmm. her grandmother ran a booking business out of the basement of a funeral home. Oh my God, so did ours. Yeah. <laughs> she did it for like 19 years before she had to give it up. So... They would hide money and papers in the, see, I don't know if you're kidding or not. So I'm like, all right, just keep going. I'm totally kidding. I would, you would know that story. I think if her grandma was like running an illegal booking. Well, it would be, 
amazing. It honestly would make it would be such a fantastic story, considering the fact that our grandfather. Now this is true. This is true. This is true. Started Gamblers Anonymous in Cincinnati. Wow. Because of um, his intense gambling addiction. Yes. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So that would have been way to do something about it. So, I know, right? Yeah, good on him. Right. You know, way to change the tide. Uh, yeah. So the fact that if she, if she would have been running a a big bookie organization out of the basement, that would have been probably one of the reasons why Grandpa had the issues. <laughs> Conflicting interests there. <laughs> I will not take your bet. <laughs> it's funny that you should say that because. When I originally was going to put together a story about what I had heard was this week, I was going to use a family member of mine who was very involved in the mob. Like there are many family members in my life that have been involved in the mob, but they're like way older or passed away. So I couldn't though, because like, I don't want, you know, the descendants of those people may still be in the mob and I don't want to like implicate anybody. So I believe that one of the... God damn it. You can't just drop knowledge like that on us and then be like, psych, never mind. She can tell us after we stop recording because I don't want to like chill and watch in billions one day and get shot in the head or some shit. <laughs> right, right, exactly. You know, we all get to go sometime. At least it's like, how'd you get taken out? Well, I was eating, I was eating Pringles in my house and then all of a sudden I died because of a mob hit. Like how... How fucking cool would that be? Fair, but the problem is the dog's always with me. Yeah. So they're not just going to be like, oh, you're fine. Yeah, but look at that sweet, sweet puppy. They would leave him alone. So, <laughs> so this her grandmother sorry, sorry. ran a booking business in the basement and she would like, they would put papers and money and stuff in the coffins to run their business. Isn't that cool? It's fucking genius. Yeah. I appreciate the ingenuity. So having all of this exposure, obviously she was really interested in the mob from an early age, particularly men in the mob, like she was attracted to them and attracted to that life. As a young woman, she started spending time with mobsters at racetracks and fights, like anywhere that people place bets. And at 17 years old, she married a man named Nat Nelson. Was she particularly attractive? No. No. I'm always, <laughs> I mean, yeah, she just got some sweet, sweet game. She's, it was just, you know. Damn, man. I just don't understand it. Anyway, continue. Well, she was probably one of the only young women hanging out around all these mobsters at like racetracks and stuff, you know, like, so. Who doesn't want a 17 year old? Me. Right. Well, <laughs> she was 17. And Nat was 48. So there was quite an age difference. So he was Jewish. He had a clothing company uh, and ties to the mob, obviously. Ties in his clothing company. Ties. (laughs) Sorry. One year into their marriage, her husband was apparently indebted to the famous mobster Jimmy Doyle. So... She walked into their apartment and Jimmy Doyle shot her husband between the eyes in the head and killed him. And she was like walking in and witnessed this. So she ran from Jimmy Doyle, 
but she ended up having to perform sexual favors for him for a long time just to keep you know keep herself safe from being murdered from him as well oh so many comments about this right now but we're gonna move on he's a dick yeah oh god they were all dick related too damn it it. (laughs) so she was seeking a way out of this arrangement and she ended up marrying another man named norman brickman and they had a little baby girl together but Again, shortly into her marriage, she found out that Mr. Brickman was cheating on her with a whole bunch of other women. So she was pissed and she wanted to teach him a lesson. So she called in a tip to the authorities about all of his shady dealings. Yes. And he went to prison. Good for him. So she was like, that takes care of that. <laughs> I mean, if anybody's ever seen the movie Casino, you know you don't piss off your woman. Like, they will fuck your life up. I had a friend, this just popped in my head when you were talking about this, who this guy, he slept with her, you know, it was a fucking run, but she knew where he worked and she knew how to use their PA system. And she had his shirt. And so she went up to the PA system, announced his name, and said, Hey, here's your shirt. Thanks for the herpes. And then she left. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's player. That's amazing. That's good. Uh, yeah, as you can imagine, Arlene wanted these men to get what they deserve. So understood. So when he went to prison, this is her second husband. She was trying to get back into the mob connections. And so she started running money for other mob members. She got called one night by an owner of a Times Square bar. And he said, come on over. I got some stuff, you know, money to talk to you about. So she went over there and they had some drinks and he asked her to come down to the basement with him. So when they got to the basement, there were five other men down there waiting for her. And they ended up raping and beating her repeatedly. Mm. So when they were done, they just left her there. And this badass lady crawled herself out of the basement afterwards and got help and was, you know, okay, relatively. That's, that's not really a great term, but she was alive. Mm-hmm. So. so she wanted to get back at these guys and tried to find somebody in the mob that would get revenge for her like on her behalf fuck yeah but no one would because she was a woman and she was jewish so even though she ran in mob circles she didn't have the kind of power or even standing as like you know a white man would she'd need some fucking street cred right right Soon after that, she met this guy named Tommy Zito, but she became involved with him and convinced him to let her help run money for racetracks. So they ran this operation out of an apartment and uh, apparently this guy Zito was very careless with the evidence of their crime. And one day in 1974, the police showed up at the apartment and arrested them both. Luckily, Arlene, was let off because it was her first offense but zito went to jail for these crimes right on set him up knock him down right 
But again, when Zito went to jail, Arlene found out that he owed a lot of money to a lot of mobsters that she was now on the hook for. Ah! Yeah. So first of all, he owed $50,000 to the famous mobster, John Gotti. Uh, oops. He threatened her and her daughter to try and get this money back, but because she didn't have the money, she was resourceful again, and she made a deal with the FBI. She would give them a bunch of information about the mob, and they would help her pay her debt back to Gotti, her, you know, her previous partner's debt. And they agreed because most women didn't have this kind of knowledge of the inner circle of the mob that she did. So it was actually really valuable. So they had her wear a wire and infiltrate the Gambino family. Holy shit. Yeah, the sting was a success. The FBI got the information that they wanted and she was out of debt with John Gotti. But that wasn't the only money that Zito owed people that she was on the hook for. Zito owned, owed a ton of money to the Colombo crime family. She did the same thing again. She wore a wire. She met a member of the Colombo family at a pizza parlor in Brooklyn. And she got really sassy with the guy in there from the Colombo family. And he got pissed at her and went outside. So she thought that she had blown it, but it turns out that he was just going out there to consult the head of the Colombo family crime syndicate who was waiting outside and watching all of this. Oh, no shit. Meanwhile, the FBI has got the whole thing under surveillance. So they catch <laughs> all of the little connecting people and the head of the Colombo crime family. She got like 10 people arrested because of that, of these like major mob people. Um, so wouldn't word get around relatively quickly if you're the informant? You would think. Yeah, wouldn't you think that they'd catch on? that, you know, she's the common denominator from all these people getting picked up. Yeah. Well, the first one, I don't think anyone ever, like the one that she did with John Gotti, I don't think anyone ever really knew that she ended up being wired and that she was part of that. But they did know about the one for the Colombo family because it ended up in so many arrests. And so she that was the last of her mob dealings. She didn't want to go into the witness protection program she said you know if i can do all of this and still walk down the street as me then i've really accomplished something like she was just proud that she did all of this and they said that because of her moxie then that all those things were a success because she got sassy with that guy you know she was just like i'm not gonna put up with this so and can i tell you how much i love the word moxie <laughs> it's so good so that was the end of her mob dealings and she lived to be an old aged woman and there's a book about her if you're interested in learning more about her story it's called mob girl the explosive true story of the woman who took on the mafia by teresa carpenter and that's what i had heard about arlene weiss excellent that's so cool very cool Man, yeah, I mean, just the balls to do that, like, you know, not once, but twice. You know, the fact that she's like, all right, uh, I got to get some money. Who do I get money from? The government. 
you know, hey, yeah, I'll go write this guy out. Sure, I'll wear a wire. Great, great, great. Fuck, more bills. Ah, it worked the first time. Let's do it again. I mean, that's just, that's. Right, I've been wronged by men in the past, but I'm like, oh, I better just keep my head down, you know, not make a big deal out of it. But she's like, nope, you're going to pay for what you did, dick. Right, right. You know, it's like, I'm just going to sit here, eat a shitload of ice cream, and then just, you know, like, make a really mean mixtape about some shit. But no, (laughs) it's like. Right. Right. That's awesome. Taking it to a different level. But yeah, kick it up a notch. Well, okay, so my female gangster isn't an individual person. It's actually an entire group. Woohoo! <laughs> They're called the Sukeban. It's uh, female gangsters that are uh, in Japan. And they uh, were super popular in the 50s to the 80s. And... Uh, yeah, the thing I love about this, so World War II happens, right? If you don't know, we dropped a big-ass bomb on Japan, ended the war, okay? So whatever you think about World War II, the effects that it had on Japan obviously were devastating. One, in the fact of, you know, nuclear fallout, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, Japan also, they had to retire their military, so to speak. They got that all completely wiped away because they're like, mm. You're going to, you did some bad shit. You're going to do some more bad shit. There was this huge economic depression. Everybody was just like, you know, it was their entire soul was crushed, so to speak, by this whole event. And so there was a lot of drinking, gambling, et cetera, at the end of the 40s, into the 50s. And so there were a lot of gangs that started. Japan is a very misogynistic country in general. The society still is and has very clearly defined gender roles uh, in their society. Everything is very formal all this kind of stuff. So the guys started forming these gangs and, you know, they'd have girlfriends and wives and, you know, sisters, mothers, all that kind of stuff. But the women were never allowed to be a part of this. So the women were like, fine, go F yourself. We're going to do our own thing. So by the fifties, sixties, this female group called the Sukiban started to form. Okay. So by the time we get to the seventies, it was huge. There was like groups that had like 20,000 members. Yeah. And their big thing was that these ladies were rebelling against how Japanese society was telling them they needed to behave, you know, so kind of what we were talking about before. The whole impetus of this was they're like, you know what, we're depressed, we're sad, we're upset, we're angry, we want to lash out against the world that is is coming crashing down on us too, go fuck yourselves, we're starting our own gang. And so one of the ways that you were able to determine who was, you know, Sukiban or not was based on the clothes they wore because all Japanese uh, students have to wear a uniform and it's very formal. Like in the girls, it's like, it looks like a sailor uniform kind of thing. And so what they did is in the sixties, there was a huge cultural revolution where it's like, you know, the women are finding their sexuality and it's like, we can wear whatever you want and shorts, mini skirts and all this wonderful stuff. But even that, even that, you know, sexual revolution got twisted into being something that was sexualized for men, you know, mini skirts, shorts, tights, all this stuff, all of this stuff was still like, you know, guys still got their rocks off on it and women were still being women. So what the Sukiban did is they took their short skirt, Catholic schoolgirl uniforms and basically had very long skirts, very long full skirts. 
they would roll their sleeves up, you know, to show that they were ready for manual labor, ready for manual work. But then they'd also cut part of their shirt off to show their midriffs, you know, as a, you know, sexual go F yourself kind of thing. So these girls started doing this stuff and then they were like, you know what, you can go around and be jerks and thieve and rob and, you know, do all this gang, gang banging type stuff. We're going to do it too. So their long skirts not only were counter to the sexual revolution of the miniskirt, it was also an excellent way to hide weapons. So they would hide chains and bamboo swords and razors mm. and, you know, whatever else they could get their hands on and carry that stuff around. What you got up there. Yeah, exactly. Watch out, my cookie could kill you. And I just thought it was like fantastic that these girls, you know, were like, we are going to express ourselves. We are going to be strong, you know, which once again was against counterculture of everything Japanese where a woman is supposed to be quiet and beautiful and soft and demure and which are all lovely, wonderful qualities. But when you're trying to force that onto an entire society full of individuals, that's not going to happen, you know? So a lot of the stuff that they had going on were very, was very closely related to the stuff that was going on in the sixties and seventies over in England with the whole punk rock thing. So these girls would go around and they dye their hair crazy colors. They're wearing Converse and, you know, they all had a hierarchy like all the other um, gangs do, like um, the Cosa Nostra, etc. The Yakuza, that was really big in Japan. Basically, they're also, it's all very male-centric. So even if you were a Yakuza boss's girlfriend or wife or daughter or whatever, you still really had zero power. You know, they didn't care about what you said. They care if you got fucked with, I bet, though. Right, because you belonged to that other person. Yep. Yeah, and you can't, I mean, and that's the thing. It's like, if you have the ear of a Yakuza boss, there are ways that you can help influence situations. So mm. you're not entirely powerless, but you are still working within a system, you know, that is not, that is geared, not geared towards you. So yeah, so these girls would go around, you know, infractions happened. They'd burn each other with cigarettes as like, you know, hey, don't fucking do that anymore kind of thing. But I, yeah, I just thought it was so fantastic that, you know, here's a cultural, like, it's so anti-Japanese. It's so anti-Kawaii, right? Kawaii is the whole, like, Hello Kitty, everything's super cute. Baha! You know, kind of Super Mario Brothers. It's super cute. It's Kawaii. This is completely opposite of that, which is fantastic. And it's all because they just wanted to not have to fit within a specific stereotype. You know... I was just watching this show recently where this woman received a gift of lingerie from one of her male bosses. And she said, I, I can't accept this. This is really inappropriate. And he was like, why is it inappropriate? And she's like, well, because it's implying sex, right? And he was like, no, it's for you to wear. I'm not ever going to see it. It's for you to feel like a strong woman. And I think that that's such an interesting uh, debate right. and, and concept because are you wearing like are, were they they didn't want to be sexy with their short skirts to for the men but there's a part of that too like they're showing off their midriffs because it makes them feel good about themselves they feel strong it's an interesting concept yeah yeah and then as a you know of course this whole counter sexual revolution you know it's the whole we're not here to please you you know we're not here as sex symbols right so then what happens of course 
as things do, eventually that initial message gets twisted, much like in the 70s with black exploitation films, where it's like you got, you know, these actual things that were really, right. you know, true life or death things and, you know, intimidating characters in your neighborhood, like a pimp, for example, gets on the movie screen and then becomes this joke, this stereotype, this, you know, it softens the edges, right? And the same thing happened with the Sukiban. There was a whole series of what's called Pinky Violence, which is basically a whole bunch of sexed up bad girl action films by the Toei Studios. Uh, which is like Hollywood in Japan. Right. And so they came up with a whole grindhouse style movie series that were all based around these girl gang bosses, then became a stereotype, you know, so much so that even uh, there's a version of the Sukeban in Kill Bill. If you remember the character who's, you know, all in schoolgirl outfit and then comes like this big ball on the end of a chain and swings around and just kicks everyone's ass. So even then, so their whole anti-cultural revolution of we are just human beings and we want to do the same stupid ass shit that men do, even that got twisted around and then became this hypersexualized uh, movie genre. Mm. Men just fucking it up no matter how you go about it. So even when you try, shit still happens. But And then on the side note of that, there's also basically female biker gangs in Japan. Uh, motorcycles are real big and... Once again, end of World War II, everybody's, you know, disillusioned, people coming back from the war, et cetera. Japan was super known for the kamikaze fighters, right? Well, not all the kamikaze fighters actually got to kamikaze and dive in a fiery, honorable plane crash. So they came back to Japan, couldn't deal with everyday life culture. So they seeing what was going on in the, the 50s and 60s with motorcycle gangs and you know, all that stuff. So the guys are like, cool, we'll, we'll ride around on our motorcycles and they go real fast and dodge in and out and avoid the police, which gave them, you know, a similar sense that flying kamikaze planes did to the point where they became these huge motorcycle gangs called the Bosozuku uh, motorcycle gangs, which then, you know, once again, you know, all the women were tired of riding on the back of their men's motorcycles. So they started their own stuff. And in true Japanese style, like their motorcycles are the shit. They're so pretty. Like the amount of stickers and the visual graphics and they have very tight front ends so that um, they can get, mm, wait till I start talking about their tails. <laughs> but they have tight front ends so that they can like dodge in and out of traffic real easily to avoid the police. And then the... Basically, what we would call sissy bars in America, they have very high back seats in the back. So they have a very distinct look to them. And then they'd, you know, they'd have all kinds of gang symbols and stuff on them. But the Bosozuku were still going until like 2007, you know, these huge biker gangs and stuff. And eventually Japan was like, all right, we're done with this. Because they would just like stop all these lanes of traffic and just race and just be general menaces. And around 2007, Japan cracked down and mm. they came up with some very s severe laws about traffic and motorcycle, whatever. And they started basically punishing people. And so a lot of that stuff dropped and then economic crisis has happened and stuff. And so then people couldn't afford to um, trick out their motorcycles like they used to. So a lot of Bosozukus are now um, rolling around on scooters. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. Are they all motorized or, you know? <laughs> 
some semaphone on really hard times. I know, right? See, no, they just got old and now they're running around in like jazzies. <laughs> <laughs> Little rascals. But yeah, I remember the first time I ever heard about the Bosozuku gangs was watching an Akira Japanimation movie, which I found in high school and was just super in love with. And just the whole way that um, if nobody's ever seen Akira, uh, you should. It's like the Citizen Kane of anime. It's really cool. And so there we go. So women in Japan trying to kick off those centuries long stereotypes that they are still under by doing the same stupid shit that guys do. That was awesome. I learned so much today. Yeah. And I think it's badass. Please rainbow me. (laughs) That's a rainbow. So Anna, do you have a motivating quote for us this week? I do. I figured since, you know, this is our midnight edition that we would have a midnight edition quote. Uh Excellent. So this quote is from one Miss Eileen Wernos. Oh. If you've listened to any of our other episodes, you know who this lady is. If you don't, go listen to our other episodes. So our words of wisdom from Miss Eileen Wernos is, if you can't be a good example, at least be a horrible warning. Fuck yeah. I can hear Eileen saying that too. Like based on what I know about her as a person, I feel like she would say something like that. Oh, yeah. So there you go. We were tight. (laughs) Like, if she would have had the ability to, she'd put that shit on bumper stickers, you know? Yes. So, this week, our friend of the show is none other than Hallmark of Greatness. You know them, you love them, and here they are. Amanda. Samantha. Susan. A successful yet single big city. Florist. Illustrator. Cake designer. Goes back to her hometown for the annual Christmas boat race. Ice sculpture contest. Jam festival. But something's not right. Her benign yet critical parents match her up with her old childhood flame. Peter. Simon. Derek. Who writes a song about her? Is a veterinarian. Can use power tools. Despite an early rivalry. Plentiful establishing shots. Some big, big salad. It looks like romance is on the cards. Join Anthony, Craig, and Joe, your guides through the bewilderingly vast Hallmark Universe film extravaganza, one film at a time. And next week, we are back with a wonderful story from Diane. Can't wait to hear it. Diane preaching the goodness of the badass ladies. I'm preaching all day. (laughs) Just like a tent revival? Can I get an amen? Nope. Okay. And you shall hear about the badasses. (laughs) Excellent. Ladies, do you have any other things you need to say? Excellent. What I had heard was we are out of time and we will see you next week. (laughs) 